As I finish my long march up to this pulpit, I ask that you would join me in prayer. Father, we give thanks to you this morning that you have called us into this place, that you are the one who summons us into worship, to hear your scriptures proclaimed and to be fed from your table. Lord, we pray now that as we open up this word, we pray that your spirit would be among us to illuminate our hearts, to reveal to us Jesus, the crucified one, the resurrected one, the ascended one, the soon to come again one. And as we see him in the words of this book, may we be transformed to become more like him by the power of your spirit. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Glad that each of you have joined us here for this time of worship. My name is Patrick Schlabs. If you're new with us, I'm one of the pastors here. And we have an interesting text before us. And I think it's very helpful to remember that we live in an age right now of the anti-hero. No longer are we given stories of the simple, quiet, good guy. Gone are the days of Lone Ranger, John Wayne, Chuck Norris. And I realize that all of those are kind of Western actors. It's funny that that is what comes to mind when you think about the kind of simple good guy, right? There's the the lone Western hero. We are now instead in this age where all of our stories and even our heroes are brooding, right? They're complex. They're morally gray. They're anti-heroes. Think about people like uh, Tony Soprano, for those of you who... um, enjoyed uh, that show, The Sopranos, Don Draper from Mad Men, Michael Corleone from The Godfather, all anti-heroes. Just think about the difference in watching Batman. I actually grew up watching the original Batman uh, from the 50s and 60s. And if you think about the tone of that, right, it was so simple. It was simpler times. A simple good guy defeating simple bad guys. And then think about the, the most recent iteration of Batman, right? It's so dark and so brooding and so morally gray throughout. And of course, these are just fiction, right? These are stories, but I think they speak to something significant, a significant shift in our culture. This postmodern lens in which this moment, postmodern moment has given us a lens to view the world and realize that it is actually very complex, The people are incredibly complex. And this can be troubling, right? To find yourself rooting for what in a a, a bygone era would feel like the bad guy. I think the most famous example of an anti-hero that we find ourselves rooting for is the man named Walter White. Um, I'm sorry I'm making so many television references. All you people without TVs, you can just go and Google it later or something like that. But Walter White, I'm sure if you, even if you don't watch TV, you're familiar with this show, Breaking Bad. It's been one of the most uh, famous television shows in the last couple decades. And if you have not seen it or are not familiar with it, it tells the story of this high school teacher who has fallen on hard times. He just, just can't catch a break in life. And the final break that, he, that happens to him is he uh, is diagnosed with, with lung cancer. It's absolutely tragic. And in the very first episode, we see this shift happened in him and he becomes so desperate for something that he resorts to selling drugs. And not just any drugs, meth. He begins selling meth. And the entire um, series is about his kind of devolving into becoming this, this drug lord. And maybe the most troubling thing about it is that you find yourselves, if you've watched it, you find yourselves cheering for this person. Even as he becomes more and more dark more and more of an anti-hero, we find ourselves cheering him on. 
And it is that kind of complexity, that kind of finding yourselves rooting for the bad guy or the bad guy being commended, the anti-hero being commended that our gospel lesson shows us this morning. It's one of the most fascinating parables. In fact, most scholars and really everybody that's written about this parable throughout the history of the church has said this is Jesus' most difficult parable. And it interestingly comes on the heels of Luke 15, the prodigal son, which is maybe his most famous, easy, happy parable, right? And so I invite you to turn with me in your pew Bibles to Luke 16. It can be found on 875, page 875 in the pew Bibles or Luke 16, uh, verse 1. And we'll look at this complex character, this anti-hero in Scripture. Swiss theologian and former uh, Harvard uh, faculty member Francois Bovon says this about this parable. Christian tradition has preserved this parable in spite of the fact that it was a source of embarrassment. And the source of the embarrassment is further unpacked by a fourth century man named Julian the Apostate. He claimed that this parable taught that Jesus' followers are to be liars and thieves and that any noble Roman should reject all such corrupting influences. So that is where we find ourselves this morning, right? What are we going to do with that? I, I would like to point out that Pete, our uh, rector and dean who is out of town this week, last week got the first part of Luke 15, the lectionary. We, we follow a lectionary that's kind of set readings from the gospel. And so he got one that's all about finding things that were lost and celebration and rejoicing and heaven and all of that. And then he takes off and he leaves me with this one. <laughs> Hoping he doesn't listen to the podcast to catch that remark. But let's jump in, okay? So we have this scene. And I'll comment more about this in a second, but Jesus is telling a series of parables out of Luke's gospel. And we see them throughout the book, but this is the highest concentration. And for this year in our lectionary, we've spent most of our time in the gospel of Luke, okay? That's this year. Next year will be Matthew. This year is Luke. And as a quick reminder, back in the spring, I taught several times about Luke. And what I kind of uh, summarize Luke as being primarily concerned with the message and mission of Jesus. And throughout this book, we see that he is teaching about the coming of the kingdom, and then he's displaying it with his power, signs, and wonders. And Luke, of all the gospel writers, is most concerned with economics. There are many stories about the poor and the destitute and the downtrodden be welcomed into the kingdom while the rich are excluded. He is, uh, talks often about these two kind of disparate kinds of people, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, all being offered the response of this message. Will you respond to the kingdom or not? And the, the previous chapter he's speaking to Jesus when he's telling these parables is speaking to a crowd that appears to be a mixed crowd. Some people are, the, there's just a crowd, um, just kind of the bystanders. Then there are Pharisees there and there are also disciples. And so here he turns his attention to the disciples in particular. And he begins to tell this story. He says that there was a rich man who had a manager. I think a better word to use for there is a steward, but we don't really have anything like a steward um, in, our kind of, in, our, in our current day. I couldn't think of anything. Maybe something like um, a personal assistant who handles everything for you, someone who um, managed everything from your schedule to uh, your finances to the running of your household. That's sort of what this person was doing. And this manager, this steward, is accused of wasting his master's estate of squandering it. It's worth noting that this is the same word, waste and squander is the same word that's used in the prior chapter for the prodigal son. So in chapter 15, we have a prodigal son and then here we have this prodigal steward, prodigal manager. 
And he faces a reckoning, right? He says, I hear that you've been squandering uh, and wasting my possessions, so turn in your books. Turn in your accounts. He goes ahead and kind of preemptively fires him. He knows that he's been doing these, this, but he says, I want to see the books anyway. I want to audit those and look through them. And so the manager comes up with this scheme. He looks at the situation and uh, this scholar, Kenneth Bailey, who's an expert in kind of first century Jewish context, says that here it's, it's implied that this servant is guilty by his silence. Anybody in the ancient Near East would have expected an argument. If he had, in fact, been unjustly uh, accused, he would have argued. But his silence um, expresses guilt. And so he comes up with this plan. Though he could fight it, though he could actually even repent, Right? Think about it in context of, of the prodigal son. He could have said, I'm so sorry. I have wasted. I have, I'm not worthy to be called your steward, but maybe let me stay on as something else, as a servant. He doesn't do that. He could go get a different job, but he says, I'm too weak or old to dig and I'm too proud to beg. And so he comes up with this plan. He has this aha moment as he is overcome with what to do. The light comes on. And he decides not to just sin, as he had been doing, to waste, to squander. He decides to sin even more boldly, to steal even more for his own benefit. And so he brings in all of these master's debtors. Clearly, he was aware of the situation. He was aware of who owed what. And he goes to them, each one individually in secret, so that the plan doesn't get out. And he says, how much do you owe? Okay, I owe this much, 100, you know, 100 um, uh, portions of oil. And he says, quick, take and write 50. And he makes sure, he says, in your handwriting, right? I'm not going to be blamed for this. I want to do it in secret so that you, you are the one that has the handwriting there. And he comes to the, a person that owes him 100, um, 100 portions of wheat. And he says, take, take it and write 80 in your hand. The implication there is that he eliminates these massive debts for people. I was curious what that uh, came out to. I'm sure you are as well. Um, the total debt that is forgiven on the oil comes out to about 875 gallons of oil. A yield of 146 olive trees, right? That's a lot of olive trees. Three years worth of salary for an average worker at this point. That's how much that's worth. And then the same for the, the, the wheat. It's a thousand bushels of wheat that is forgiven there. Eight to nine years worth of pay. It's a bold play, right? It's a bold plan. And he's trusting that if he can get this debt forgiven, if he can make himself out to look like the hero to these people... And they're going to welcome him in and say, hey, if you need a place to stay. And I would assure you that if, you, if someone did that to you, if someone came to you and said, hey, listen, let's just, let's just um, take the record of your, of your mortgage and just eliminate half of it. And if he didn't have a place to stay, you probably would be willing to take him to your house, right? That's the logic there. Someone came to me and said, hey, half of it's wiped away. I would welcome him. I would probably throw a party for him. I would throw a feast for him. So that's his plan. He executes it. And we might be expecting that the rich man would come to him and lose it and get angry. So many of Jesus' parables end with like that, right? There's retribution, there's justice. He could bring him before the court and have all of this exacted from him. And yet, no, he commends him. He praises this manager, this unjust, unfaithful steward. This is the crux of the complexity of this story right here. And it has tormented interpreters for forever. And it and tormented me all week. So, didn't sleep much last night. So what are we to make of this? How do we reconcile 
this rich man praising these less than stellar acts by this person. Like many issues, many difficult interpretive issues in scripture, I think the context offers us the clue. Context offers us the clue. As I said earlier, this is an entire series of parables going back to chapter 14. And he's speaking to different groups of people. He's speaking to Pharisees. He's speaking to disciples. He's speaking to crowds. And each one of them has one thing in common. And it is that it shows the contrast between a kingdom perspective, a kingdom view of things versus an earthly or worldly view of things. Beginning in Luke 14, there are all these parables that I said about feasts where a rich man comes and he invites all these people to his feast. And then whenever they turn him down, when different types of people turn him down, he says, go to the highways and the byways and invite the poor, invite the destitute into this. Luke 15 is these lost things, these lost sheep, these lost coins, this lost son. And so chapters 14 and 15 are reorienting our understanding of community and the people of God. Who is in and who is out? Who is excluded and who is welcomed in? And Jesus is inviting these people that he's teaching to, 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 to reorient themselves and view it from a kingdom perspective, not from an earthly perspective. If we were thinking about things like just according to the, this world, right, we only invite the best people to our parties, right? We only invite the best to our gatherings, to our weddings, whatever it is. And Jesus says, all have been invited. And in fact, some of the people who you would think should be in have been excluded. And I've welcomed in the poor and the destitute. And so, of course, if you were reading this prior to the fourth century, you wouldn't have seen these uh, chapter headings, right? So you would have just continued on. You would have read about these feasts and a reorientation of what the community of the people of God is like. And then you come to this prodigal, wasteful son being welcomed back in. And then you continue to read and you see here, we have a wasteful, unjust manager. Each of these parables is a contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. We'll see a different facet of that next week. We've got another difficult text. And so this parable, specifically focusing on resources, is a challenge of us to reorient our understanding of resources based on the kingdom of God. Reorient and get a kingdom perspective with regard to our resources. The manager is not praised here because of his shrewdness, or because, rather because of his, because of his duplicitous um, actions, he's praised because of his wisdom, because of his perspective, because he, rather than squandering and thinking only about the immediate, whenever his future is threatened, he thinks about the future and he takes decisive action in the present. The manager takes action to secure future benefits. And this is what the master is commending. This is what the master is praising. At the very first, whenever he was squandering things, right, the presumption there is that he was squandering them for his own gain in the moment. And so he's fired for that. But then his response to that is not to say, you know, whatever, YOLO, it's going to probably work out. That means you only live once, in case you're wondering. He begins to actually shift gears and think about his future. Though his deeds are evil or wicked, he's still at least thinking about the future. He's planning for the future. I think one way to think about this shift is what happens with our health, right? Whenever you're in your teens or 20s, what do you do? You eat whatever you want, right? You don't have to exercise. You don't have to work out. You don't have to watch what you eat because everything is fine. Your metabolism is good enough. It covers for it. 
But then as you grow older, what happens? Those of you who are in your 30s or 40s, right? You remember that transition. It happens fast. You have to begin to shift what you think about and you have to begin to do things in the present that set you up for the future or else, right? You begin to eat healthy. You begin to, or watch watch what you eat. You begin to exercise so that you can have a long life. The same thing happens with money, right? When you're young and when you have more money than you know what to do with, you spend it. Buy things, go on trips, accumulate, whatever it is. But when you begin to think about the future and security for your future, you begin to take action in the present for the sake of the future. That is what he's commending here. Except he's not just commending it. That, both of those things are earthly, right? Those are in relation to our earthly existence. Of course we want to be good with our money. Of course we want to be good with our health. But Jesus is calling us to lift up our eyes to think beyond this world and to think about what these resources are meant for and to take decisive action now with how we spend, with how we use our money, with how we use our time, our talents, our resources for the sake of God's kingdom, not strictly for the sake of this earth. It's so easy to think of our resources as ours, to hoard them to ourselves or to waste them or whatever it is, to to function in effect as this bad manager. And yet this parable reminds us that we We need to think bigger. We need to think about the future. We need to first and foremost think of ourselves as citizens of this kingdom and orient our actions around that. Christ's future kingdom animates, inspires our present action in the world. C.S. Lewis gets at this in, in a quote that you can see at the beginning of your bulletin. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. And he goes to give some examples of that. British evangelicals, for one of them, with abolishing the slave trade. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Summarizes it pretty well, right? God's future kingdom animates our present action in the world. Okay, so what else? That's, that's the kind of overarching principle, but what does that mean for our resources? What does that mean for us? It means that we need to be stewards in a way that anticipates that future kingdom. Jesus summarizes this entire passage in uh, 13, or rather 10 through 13. And he says, no one who is uh, faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is dishonest in much. And he says, if you are unfaithful with what is someone else's, then who can trust you with true riches? And then comes to this final, very famous uh, line that he says, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve God and money. And so the kind of takeaway there in specific regard to our resources is that we are to be faithful, shrewd, wise stewards of our stuff. The word for money is not just money. It's mammon, which is an Aramaic word that they transliterated. But it doesn't just mean money. It means all of our possessions. It means all of our money, all of our time, all of our talent. And we're to be faithful, which in this context, I think faithful, we can say, means wise and generous. We'll talk about that more in just a second. But I think the rich man here, the fact that the rich man does not punish the steward nor the debtors gives us a sense of his generosity. We see that he's not a stingy man. He could have exacted revenge against this steward and against these debtors, and yet he doesn't. He's generous. He's not only wise, he's a wise steward, right? Because he calls this steward, he's a wise man, rather, because he calls this steward into account. He's just. He's not just letting this steward waste his money, and yet he's not 
coming after it aggressively. And so therefore, we are to reflect this rich man, whoever he is. We're to be both wise and generous. Some of you are probably wise with your money. And that probably at times looks like stinginess, right? Some of you are probably very generous with your money. And that looks a lot of times like just waste, right? We probably fall on one or the other, one end of the spectrum or the other. Yet to be wise, generous stewards is the only way that we can reflect our wise and generous God. That's what stewardship looks like. And it's only animated by us viewing ourselves in light of eternity, in light of the kingdom of God. We have spent most of our time this morning with this notion of anti-hero. But as I begin to kind of say a second ago, we, this story does have a hero. He's very silent, doesn't say much, but the rich man is the hero of this story. He's the one who is wise and just and gracious, both to this manager and to the debtors. When he could have extracted vengeance on this manager, he refrains and in fact commends him. When he could have restored the full amount of these debtors owed, right? Three years worth and eight to nine years worth. He could have done that, but he doesn't. Instead, he shows them generosity, kindness, and grace. What does this sound like? It reminds us of Jesus, right? Who though we have been unwise, unfaithful, duplicitous stewards with all of God's resources, with all of our resources, with all of this world's resources, we've been unfaithful stewards. We've been debtors, and yet he doesn't exact vengeance when he could. He's shown us grace. He's shown us kindness. Whenever we have been owed a huge debt. He's not just repaid part of it through his cross and through his resurrection. He's repaid, repaid it in full. He's given us his kindness when we deserved his justice and his judgment. And it's only through his generosity that we can be transformed. Our hearts can be transformed, enabled to live with the kingdom perspective, reflect his wisdom, reflect his generosity. And so this week, I want you to think about how a kingdom perspective would shape everything about your life, but in particular, your resources. This is not strictly about giving, but it does animate our, our, our use of our resources. Audit, give yourself an audit and say, would my resources, with the way that I spend my time, my money, and my gifts, my personal gifts, does that reflect a coming kingdom or just this kingdom of this world? And then finally, if it doesn't, pursue, or even if it does, pursue even greater stewardship that is both wise shrewd and also generous. We can learn a lot from an anti-hero, but we can only be saved and transformed by a true one. Amen? Amen.